You know, anger can cause us to do some really irrational and foolish things. I remember the story of a man who was out golfing and he wasn't doing very well. On one particular hole, he was trying to hit his drive over a lake and it went into the water. He was so angry, he picked up his golf clubs, all of them, and the bag, and threw them into the lake and huffed off the course in uh, fuming and great anger. His partners were a little surprised, but then a moment later, he came back and seemed calm and cool and collected, and they thought, well, maybe now he's gotten the better of his emotions. He actually waded into the lake retrieved his golf bag with his golf clubs, opened up the pocket of the bag, pulled out his car keys, and threw the bag back into the lake. Anger causes us to do some foolish and irrational things, like arguing with God. That's what Jonah is doing in Jonah chapter 4. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to this portion of Scripture as we've taken a a short journey through this wonderful book. And I want to read just the first five verses to begin with. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Now we know that's his response to the revival that took place in chapter 3, where the city of Nineveh in mass came to faith in God. They repented of their wicked ways and they trusted Yahweh, Jehovah. What, what appeared to be a genuine revival and true conversion. So Jonah's upset. Verse two, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, that you're slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, or it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So from verse one, we understand that Jonah is livid. In fact, the actual Hebrew says something like this. Jonah's response is, this is evil. This is a great evil. The fact that you have brought these people to repentance and save them and not destroy them is wrong. It's interesting, God's anger was avoided against the Ninevites, chapter three, verse nine, when at the same time, Jonah's anger is ignited by them coming to faith in Christ. The NIV uses the word displeased. Have you ever been displeased with God to the point where you're angry? And you think his ways are evil? And you even offer up a prayer that is actually a prayer of complaint. I mean, that's the first thing, right? We see Jonah complaining in anger in chapter 4. And his anger is expressed in a prayer. Now, I would encourage you to compare the two prayers of Jonah. The first one is in chapter 2, and 
the next one here is chapter 4. In chapter 2, remember he was in the belly of a great fish. And he was crying out that the Lord would save him. He had been running away from God. There was a storm on the ship. They threw him overboard. The great fish swallows him up. And chapter 2 is a psalm. It's Jonah praying for God to deliver him. Now it's been well said that that was the best prayer in the worst place. And now here's the worst prayer in the best place. A time of revival. A time of God's blessing. In chapter 2, he had a broken heart and cried out, Lord, save me. And in chapter 4, he has an angry heart and says, but don't save them. Amazing behavior from one who calls himself a servant of God. And now we see the real reason why he ran in chapter 1. Notice in his prayer, he said, is this not what I said to you when I was at home? Way back in Gath-Hefer, just north of Galilee. That's why I was so quick to run. I knew your character. I know that you're compassionate. And by the way, he's quoting from one of the most familiar portions of Scripture in all the Old Testament. This is Exodus, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It's repeated in, in the book of Nehemiah, in, in the small minor prophet Joel. It's in the Psalms. It's repeated over and over again that God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. The opposite of, of us. We're often quick to anger. We're very soon angry and our anger lasts a long time and it's often for the wrong reasons. But God is slow to anger. Doesn't mean he, he doesn't get angry, but he's amazingly patient and long-suffering he abounds in love and he relents when people come to him in faith and repentance what does relent mean it's different than repent unfortunately some translations have the word repent but repent means to uh, confess that you've done wrong and start doing right relent is just a change in a plan but God already had this involved in his plan. And we quoted from other portions of Scripture in the Old Testament. God says, if the nation that I have threatened repents, I will hold back my anger. And that's exactly what he did. So God relented from the anger, the punishment that was planned, because of their repentance. Jonah's upset that God pardoned other people. He wasn't too upset in chapter 2 when God delivered him, but he's very upset when God delivers others. He views God's mercy as regrettable and his forgiveness as a sign of weakness. They deserve to be punished. Can't you hear it? That's what they earned. Well, what about you, Jonah? You should have never been delivered if we're judged only by our sins. Warren Worsby once said, the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And while outwardly the prophet looked like he was doing a fairly good job up to that point, inwardly his heart was far from God. 
He obeyed God in chapter 3 and did go to Nineveh and did preach, but his heart wasn't in it. <laughs> and now he's, he's revealed, he's exposed. The anger, Jonah's anger, is based on and fueled by hatred. Or we might even say prejudice. It's amazing to me, but in our sinful state, we can just hate people because they're not like us. They're different, and we hate it. There's a story that I read a few years ago in Sports Illustrated about a football game. Actually, in Europe, they call it football. We call it soccer. But it was a soccer match that took place annually. In fact, it's been going on since 1888 in Glasgow, Scotland, between two local football clubs. The game involves politics, class, but most of all, religion. Sport, I think, is the last on the list. Two teams, the Celtics, or maybe they're called the Celtics, they're Catholic, and the Rangers are Protestant. The Celtics wear green and white. The Rangers wear blue and orange. They meet together in a city stadium with 60,000 screaming fans separated by five empty rows filled with police just to keep the game calm. The Celtics wear Umbro uniforms. The Rangers wear Nike. They can't agree on anything. Peter Rooney, who's a Celtic fan, says, I won't even wear blue jeans. It all comes down to this, Catholics versus the Protestants. I hate them, and that will never change. Paul Laveri, a ranger, says of the Celtics, they're animals. I hate everything they stand for, everything they believe in. As soon as I see them, my blood begins to boil. When asked why, he shrugs, just the way I was brought up. And that, my friend, is happening all over this world. It's just the way we were brought up to hate people, to be filled with prejudice. And that fuels our anger when a kindness is shown to a group of people we do not like. It's also, his anger is also fueled by pride. Proverbs 13, verse 10, I memorized it years ago in the old King James. Only by pride cometh contention. In other words, you can't have conflict and contention where pride is absent. And in Jonah's case, there is this pride of reputation. Remember, he was the prophet who back in 2 Kings 14 predicted that Israel's borders would be expanded, the territory enlarged, and the people loved that. That's prosperity. And it, and it came true. And he was honored as a hero. But now, if in any way he is seen to aid their enemies, if he is complicit in helping the Ninevites avoid judgment, why, you're a traitor. And I think his pride was deeply challenged. Think about it this way. Maybe it wasn't simply hatred or simply pride. Maybe the prophet Jonah knew 
that the kingdom of Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh, would rise up in about 30 years and take Israel captive and destroy the northern kingdom. I, I don't know if he knew that. I don't know if he thought that it might happen. But here, the enemies of God are given a second chance. Wipe them out now, or else they'll come back and hurt your people, God. Maybe that's why he was so angry. The pride of patriotism sometimes blinds us. And then finally, this idea of fear. What will happen to my own nation, Israel. Well, the results of his anger, pretty evident. He's in rebellion against God. That's verse 1 and 2. But then he goes into depression. Verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better to me, better for me to die than to live. This is similar to what Moses said. This is similar to what Elijah says. These great prophets involved in heated conflict would often at times lose their focus. This is divine euthanasia that he's praying for. Take my life. Well, then you shouldn't have prayed so hard in chapter two for God to save your life. How inconsistent can we be? Our existence has little meaning and even less fulfillment if we are not walking in harmony with the will of God. We will always be dissatisfied and quickly angry and argue with Almighty God. The New American Standard translation of verse 4, do you have any good reason to be angry? Wow, what a question. It's interesting. Is your anger appropriate? Years ago, Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Other Side of Anger. He was focusing on love, but to emphasize love, he had to talk about this thing called anger. He said illegitimate anger is usually based on distorted thinking. Strong passion or emotion of, of displeasure wells up within us, usually antagonism it's incited by some sense of injury or insult something triggers our displeasure and then doctors tell us physiological changes begin to take place the adrenaline glands release hormones chemicals create tenseness and our body physically gets hot the face red the brow begins to sweat. And it's interesting that the Hebrew word for anger is the word hot. How quickly we get angry and hot when things don't go our way. So there's rebellion, there's depression, and finally there's isolation. This is verse 5. Now, a revival is taking place in Nineveh due to Jonah's preaching. How about some follow-up? <laughs> They're going to need some instruction in the early steps of following God, but oh no, he's out of there. That's exactly what he didn't want to happen. And so he isolates himself on the east side of the city where he makes himself a little shelter, probably out of branches and leaves, 
similar to the Feast of Booths that was practiced in the Old Testament. And he waited to see what would happen to the city. He's pouting and sulking, the pouting prophet. And he's waiting to see. Waiting to see what? His message in Nineveh was, in 40 days, God's going to release his judgment upon you unless you repent. And he probably barely added that last phrase. So now I think he's going to wait 40 days. And maybe something will happen. And maybe this judgment will still come upon them. So he's waiting to see if they trip up, if they fall. He's waiting to see if God will change his mind from compassion to judgment. So in rebellion, he's fighting against God. In depression, he's fighting against himself. And in isolation, he's fighting against the other people he was sent to reach. What a sad picture of a prophet. What a sad picture of a church. Led away by our anger and pride when we're supposed to be reaching other people who don't know Christ. And because of class, because of religion, whatever it may be, we stay away from them instead of bringing to them true faith in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is amazing to me that Jonah, ang- that Jonah complains against God It is more amazing to me that God corrects Jonah in love. That God is patient. I don't know about you, but if I were God in this story, I would say, I'm done with you. But God doesn't do that. He asks two searching questions of Jonah. And we've noticed the first already. Is it right for you to be angry or let's put it this way should you be angry Jonah well that's a that's a great question to test your character and mine are you angry do you have a right did you know that the word anger is found about 455 times in the Old Testament and 375 times it refers to God's anger that's over 82 percent Apparently, it's okay to be angry because God gets angry and we are made in his image. But there's a difference between righteous indignation and selfish anger. So we have to ask ourselves the question is this appropriate? Is it right? If someone were to abuse one of your children, threaten to kidnap them, Should you not get angry? Absolutely. That's righteous indignation. So Jonah had to ask this question. And by the way, God loves to ask questions. He already knows the answers, but we don't apparently know the answers. Apparently, we don't know where we are. The questions reveal the attitude of the heart. Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where are you? God knew, but Adam didn't. Genesis chapter 4, Cain, where's your brother? Luke chapter 22, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? John chapter 21, Peter, do you love me more than these? 
And Jonah chapter 4, doest thou well to be angry? <laughs> the answer is pretty obvious. The answer is no. I remember a student one time in a class got very angry at an assignment, was fuming, got up to leave. The teacher said, you come back and sit in your seat. And the student did this and then said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> I'm afraid sometimes our pews are filled with people who are sitting on the outside, but standing in rebellion against God in their heart. Is it good for you to be angry? Jonah's response is silence. He had nothing to say. He, he could not say anything without convicting himself. He pleads the Fifth Amendment. He says nothing, and God says, oh, not talking, eh? Okay. Let me then provide for you a teachable moment. And that's when we come to verse 6. If conversation won't work, how about this? The Lord God provided a vine. Now that's a very difficult Hebrew word, I'm told. In the King James, it's the word gourd. In the NIV, first one was vine. In the newer NIV, it's a leafy plant. No one really knows what a kigayan is. But it, it probably is some type of a leafy plant. But no, notice God provided it, so it might have been unique. It was certainly fast growing. He made it grow up uh, over Jonah quickly. And it provided shade for his head. You say, well, Jonah built a shelter for shade. Yeah, but the, the leaves he used had already withered in the heat. This was a living plant that came up out of nowhere to shade his head and ease his comfort the Bible tells us. Some type of climbing vine. And this is interesting. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. <laughs> this is the first time this dude's been happy throughout the whole book. I'm very happy for the plant. What do you think about the plant, Jonah? I love it. Oh, it's great. Love the shade. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Did you notice the word provide? in verse 6 and in verse 7 he provides the plant he provides the worm and he's going to provide in verse 8 an east wind so here's this ravenous worm that comes up again maybe a special guy he certainly was ambitious to tackle this huge plant that had grown up so quickly and he begins to gnaw on it. So the first experience that God gives to Jonah is a positive one. The plant, the shade. And he's very happy for it. By the way, these are good test questions. What makes you angry? What makes you happy? Have you ever answered those? I mean, deeply from your heart? He must have said, this is good, this plant. God is blessing me. He must not be angry with me. But Jonah did not realize this was not for his comfort ultimately. It was for his correction. The first experience is positive. The second is very negative. The worm and the wind, a scorching east wind, sometimes called the Sirocco. Now think about it. In a desert region, a scorching wind just adds insult to injury. 
And I kind of wonder if, if after being in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, that Jonah somehow did not have the gastric juices of that animal work on his body. Some have implied that maybe all the dark pigment, pigment of his skin had been taken off, and almost with albino effect, his skin was white and bleached, and if so, far more sensitive to the sun than any normal human being. And so the scripture says he was happy for the vine, but now as the sun blazes, he says, I want to die, verse 8. It would be better for me to die than to live. You talk about an emotional roller coaster. Kill me. I'm happy to live. Kill me. I see so much of myself in this. It is shameful. But I want you to know that the God who provides the shade also provides the worms and the wind in our lives to correct us. He provides the virus to stop us in our tracks, to get us thinking about other things. The God who is a God of health and redemption and life is also the holy God of justice and judgment for those who reject him. So now he repeats question number one in verse nine. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? <laughs> Jonah, is it? And he responds by saying, it absolutely is. In fact, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And again, if I were God in this place, I would have said, so be it. Aren't you glad God is more gracious than we are? Did you know that God is more gracious than the church? Now this is faulty logic coming out of Jonah. He's blinded by prejudice and pride and selfishness and anger. And as Matthew Henry well said, foolish is the man who thinks that his life is bound up in a vine. We get very upset when our agenda is not followed, very upset when our possessions are gone, but we're quick to condemn others. Faulty logic. But listen to divine logic. And God gives it to us in verse 10. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. It's a temporary plant. You had nothing to do with its existence, nothing at all. Verse 11, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many animals as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And there's the second searching question. Should you be angry? Question number one, repeated twice. Question number two, should I not be compassionate? You're angry about a plant. You had nothing to do with it. I'm compassionate and concerned about eternal souls that I have created in my image. Should I not be concerned? By the way, only two books in the Old Testament end with a question. Jonah and the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum 
is a prophecy that comes later about the judgment on the city of Nineveh. Apparently, one generation repented, but the others did not. Should I not be compassionate? God says. I think Jonah might have said, but, but what about my reputation? And I think God would have said, lose it. I lost my reputation for the Ninevites. Israel's going to hate me because of this. Jesus lost his reputation by dying like a thief on the cross. D.L. Moody lost his reputation when he was a young evangelist in Chicago. I don't know if you've heard the story, but this is quite amazing. In the, in the mid-1800s, 1858, D.L. Moody decided to go into the Sands District, which is just north of the Chicago River, right on Lake Michigan. It was the worst district in all of Chicago. It was called Little Hell, and the street urchins who gathered and lived in that area were called little hellions they came from unfortunate homes some were abused most illiterate runaways with no place to go they gathered together and of course together they made quite a bad influence and force in the area so moody decides to rent an old decrepit wooden saloon and he cleans it up, and he turns it into a Sabbath school for these little hellions. And the people said, that's ridiculous. He lost his reputation, but he didn't care. The school became popular. 300 were attending. Moody attracted them with candy, gave them pennies, even clothing. And the people said, that's not right. <laughs> Moody didn't care because it was compassionate for these kids he started out the little program with some music to lift up their spirits and then he gave a five minute talk and then he allowed them one minute of total rowdiness they just went wild and then repeated the process some music to calm them down a five minute talk another minute of rowdiness people said that's not how you do church and Moody didn't care because it was burdened for lost souls. The outsiders called him Crazy Moody. No one in their right mind would ever try to do church in the Sands District. In two years, there were 1,500 kids. Many decisions for Christ. And in 1860, the president-elect, who had not yet taken office, Abraham Lincoln, came to talk to the boys because he was so impressed by what Moody had done. Did you know that this book ends with a question, that there's no conclusion? Should I not be compassionate toward these people? God says what happened I don't know it's like the lady and the tiger which door are you going to open is it the, the lady or the tiger 
It's unanswered. Hugh Martin said, let's remember this and give Jonah a little credit. This is an autobiography, and he is exposing his own weakness and pride, and maybe that means, hopefully it means, he turned his heart around. But maybe the book ends with a question because you and I must write the last paragraph with our lives and become more godlike in our compassion. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea, there's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There's welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. How will you write the last chapter? Let's pray. Oh God, this message is for us. Rebuke our pride and prejudice, our selfishness. Take away our fears. And may we be your servants proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Let us remember, except by the grace of God, that would be me. Oh, Lord, let us turn to you, live in harmony with you, and proclaim your good news wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.